This is the podcast by the Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by the Straits Times, where we analyze the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan, and I cover science and environment for the Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David, and I'm the climate change editor at the Straits Times. It is the 15th of October. The world is full of amazing plant and animal life, without which humans cannot survive. Yet, nature is under threat from our rush for resources to grow our economies and cities. This week, delegates from around the world met virtually to discuss a new global deal for nature to limit the impacts from environmental destruction, pollution, and climate change. With us today is Dr. David Cooper, who is from the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity. Dr. Cooper is speaking with us from Kunming in China, which has been hosting this week's talks, the first round of discussions before a major in-person meeting in Kunming next year. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Cooper. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. So we were wondering whether you could start us off by explaining why this week's meeting called COP15 is so important and what the outcomes were. So next year, at the second part of these meetings, we should be adopting the post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework, which is due to set the agenda for action by governments and everyone actually on biodiversity over, the, over this decade. This meeting this week was to really to give some political direction to the discussions that are ongoing in framing and shaping that, that framework, specifically to give some political direction from the, from the heads of state and from the, the ministers who were engaged in, in the meeting this week. So, Dr. Cooper, could you tell us uh, a little bit more about the main outcomes under discussion uh, for the main session for next year? Uh, for example, there's a goal for nations to put 30% of their land and sea territories um, set that area aside for conservation by 2030. So what other targets are there for this new deal you know, to, to make a really significant uh, improvement for nature? Yeah, so the overall aims are really to, to halt the loss of biodiversity um, and then reverse that loss to put nature on a path to recovery by the end of this decade um, so that then by 2040, 2050, we can be in a much better shape for nature and in terms of its benefits for, for people. So action to, to achieve that action is needed on many, many fronts. There's a lot of focus on, on protected areas and on the 30 by 30, in other words, 30% of land and seas protected by 2030. And that's important, although those areas must be focused on the areas that are particular importance for biodiversity and ecosystem services. And of course, they must also, also be well managed. But we have to go much beyond that 30% we have to look at what happens to the other 70% of the land and seas. And so that means addressing at root cause all of the drivers of biodiversity loss. The biggest at the moment on land is land use change. The biggest in the oceans is overexploitation, basically overfishing above all. But climate change will become the biggest driver during this century unless we take strong mitigation action. So links to the climate agenda, links from this meeting, COP15 to COP26, also really important. The others, the other main drivers are invasive species and, and pollution. 
And then, of course, in turn, to address all these, we really need to be looking at economic production and consumption patterns more, more broadly. Um, I should also say that for this framework to be actually implemented, we've also got to look at the resources. Currently, we're spending orders of magnitude more on destroying nature than we are on trying to protect it or restore it. So that has to change as well. And all of these things need to be reflected in the new framework. So Dr. Cooper, I mean, being located in Southeast Asia, we are witnessing both the wonders of the tropical rainforest in our region, but also the threats that confront it. But even as we talk about helping nature recover, maybe just set the scene for us about how bad are things now exactly? So the, the 2019 um, IPES um, global assessment really provided the most authoritative assessment of where we are uh, to now. Uh, and that, that assessment showed that about a million species are threatened with extinction if we don't take action. It also showed that those that risk to biodiversity also undermines the whole fabric of life and, and, and it underlines the all of these ecosystem services or contributions that nature provides to people that we depend on clean water protection of erosion protection uh, of coastlines our food our medicines and so also this ongoing assault on nature on ecosystems is also increasing the risk of zoonotic disease emergence the sort of like the pandemic we're now we're now suffering from um, so what's at stake is yeah the future of nature but also the future of nature's contributions to people and, and therefore um, human human well-being but nations have known uh, for quite a long time about the growing risks to nature and in fact at the the last major biodiversity meeting uh, or cop in nagoya in 2010 which Nations had set targets for 2020, but I think almost all of those, or if not all of them, um, have not been met. So are you more hopeful this time that you know, 2022 will lead to a much better deal for nature? So I certainly hope so. And, and I should say that really this is, this is perhaps our last chance um, this decade to take decisive action. I think the targets that were set in Nagoya in 2010 were were actually quite good targets. And we made a lot of progress on some of them. For instance, on uh, protecting 17% of land and 10% of oceans, we're pretty close to those actually, but we didn't really achieve most of the other targets. And I think this is, this is again a warning going back to this question of the 30 by 30. We can achieve these targets of protecting areas without addressing the fundamental drivers of biodiversity loss. So that's where the focus has got to be. I am more hopeful for a number of reasons. One, uh, we're seeing, I think, engagement by governments at a much higher political level. This cannot be left to just ministers of environment. It has to be driven by heads of state and government. Finance ministries have to be involved. And then more broadly, it has to be across society. So we're increasingly seeing businesses recognize that they need to do more as to address this issue. We're seeing financial institutions um, take this on board. We had, in fact, on Wednesday, many financial institutions point responsible for some 12 trillion of assets, you know, pointing out that they need um, more regulation um, to ensure that 
financial flows are actually supportive and not disruptive of biodiversity. We're also, I think, seeing more people engaged. The other things that we have to do differently from last time is we have to be ready from the day this agreement is adopted next May to start implementing it right away. Uh, and we did have some good signs in that regard this week uh, in terms of the Global Environment Facility and UN agencies that work with it, committing to be ready with some of the uh, enabling finance that would be needed to get things off the ground. We had also this um, commitment of some $230 million over the decade from, from the Chinese government to support that. Of course, much bigger amounts of funds will be needed to actually support implementation. A lot of that could come from redirecting subsidies that are currently harmful for, to biodiversity, uh, subsidies that lead to overuse of agrochemicals, subsidies that lead to overfishing, and of course, fossil fuel subsidies. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating. Thanks, Dr. Cooper. I mean, earlier you talked about the financial tools that could help safeguard biodiversity. And I think one of them that's been increasingly talked about nowadays is the sale of carbon credits from nature-based solutions. And that also happens to benefit the climate. So I was wondering if you could share a bit more with us about the close links between the biodiversity and climate emergencies and shed more light about why these two are so interlinked. They're certainly interlinked. I would argue they're inseparable. I mean, firstly, climate change is a major driver of biodiversity loss. As I mentioned earlier, it will become the biggest driver if we don't take action. Um, biodiversity is all, already suffering from climate change. And we really have to keep to 1.5 degrees. Even at two degrees, the impacts are at least twice as bad for biodiversity as they are at 1.5 degrees. And if you look at some uh, ecosystems, particularly coral reefs, Two degrees is an order of magnitude worse than 1.5 degrees. Coral reefs, a chance of coral reefs surviving a two degree world or warmer are pretty close to, to nil. So we have to invest in strong climate mitigation. So that's the first point. But, but secondly, biodiversity, nature, ecosystems can help both in terms of climate mitigation and climate adaptation. In fact, um, by investing in conservation, pr protecting the, the ecosystems we have, investing in restoration, and then also in looking how we manage the landscapes more generally, uh, including agricultural landscapes, we could contribute about a third of the net mitigation effort needed to be close to 1.5 degrees. There are, though, some important caveats to that. I mean, firstly, you know, there are people on the land. We need to make sure that these so-called nature-based solutions or ecosystem-based approaches are implemented with the full involvement and support of indigenous peoples and local communities in particular and respecting their rights, including their, their, their rights to land tenure. It's also important that we look at ecological principles. There's a lot of focus on tree planting, and of course that can be good, but a foresting ecosystems that are naturally non-forest ecosystems will harm biodiversity and in many cases it will harm the climate as well because it's not sustainable it's not 
not resilient. And of course, the other point is that these efforts to contribute to climate mitigation through nature-based solutions, through ecosystem restoration, through uh, conserving the ecosystems we have and so on, must be additional to stringent fossil fuel reductions and not instead of them. We can't simply offset fossil fuel emissions that should themselves be reduced by nature-based solutions. Yes, so that leads quite neatly into the next question that I wanted to ask, which is you know, the concept of putting a price on nature. Uh, I think, I guess, a lot of people kind of take nature and its and the services it provides us for granted. You know, that's, that's for free. But actually, we shouldn't really think of that as free because because then we don't value it. So in terms of putting a value on nature, such as the carbon that trees lock away or, you know, the water stored in forests, could that be one policy tool uh, that could successfully arrest the loss of biodiversity? So I think it's certainly part of what needs to be done. And in fact, there's really good work going on here in China. In fact, we heard about it today at the, the Forum on Ecological Civilization on gross ecosystem product, which is looking at the, the value of the ecosystem services essentially provided by the biodiversity and factoring this in then to decision-making, in particular um, land use planning. So this is quite well advanced here. It's been explored in, in a number of other countries, uh, including the UK, Colombia, um, you know, many others. And it certainly can, I think, um, be a useful tool for policymaking. What we have to do at the same time, though, is, is recognize that people have multiple and diverse views about nature and they, there are multiple values. So, and it's not always easy to compare these and it's certainly not easy to reduce all of them into, into dollar terms. Firstly, you know, we need to look at it in physical terms. So we need to look at the water provided, the clean air provided, the areas that are perhaps protected from erosion in, in physical terms as well as monetary terms and the numbers of people that benefit from those. Um, but then, you know, how do you compare the more cultural and religious sacred values of, of biodiversity? So it's going to be always important to look at how people on the ground, including local people, value biodiversity. As we advance these tools, and I think we should advance these tools, but as we advance these tools and scale them up to national and global levels, we'll need a certain amount of standardization but we have to be careful that we're not then crowding out the, the voices and the uh, interests of, of local people. And just a final question. I think for a lot of people, the idea of saving nature is they might feel a little bit helpless. You know, it's, it's a big issue and, um, that they're not sure what they can do. So what would be some simple things that people could do uh, to make a difference and to reduce their own impact on nature? Well, many of the things are the same things they can do to uh, uh, help with climate change. So um, reducing energy use, using public transport, you know, walking, cycling, these sorts of things. In terms of diet, um, the biggest contributor is meat. doesn't mean that no one can eat meat, but it means reducing perhaps excessive consumption of, of, of meat, uh, particularly in the richer, in the richer countries. Beyond that, of course, it's important that people 
let their views be known, um, that they push for the changes that need to, to happen in their cities, in their, in their, in their regions and in, the, in their nations. Um, so engaging in with NGOs, um, making sure their voices are known, voting, all of these are important things as well. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Cooper. Um, with the Climate Change Conference coming up in Glasgow at the end of this month, actually, I'm sure the biodiversity agenda agreed on at COP15 will definitely play an important factor. I certainly hope so. I'll be going to Glasgow from here. Um, certainly the linkages between these two issues is, is really important. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about what has been happening here in, in Kunming. Um, and looking forward to coming back to Kunming for the uh, meetings next year. Well, that's a wrap for Green Pulse and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.